0: Off episode 141 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Black Crescent. It is from the band Beware the Dangers of a Ghost Scorpion, and you can find it on their album Blood Drinkers Only. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. This is the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear, and we've got a definitive classic this time around. Can't wait to talk about it with you guys and gals and Larry Underwood, aka. Dr. Green, a.k.a. a horror host who's on the ballot for the 2015 Horror Host Hall of Fame. He's a friend of mine, and I'm excited to have him on the show to talk about Nosferatu. Oh yeah, I'm your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook. I'm stoked. He wanted to talk about Nosferatu for a while. This is one of his favorite films. It's a big one for him. And we sat down and recorded about it, Skyped it up a little bit, talked about this adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula unauthorized but still an adaptation of Dracula we talked about this movie a while back this was actually recorded back before we did the 20,000 leagues under the sea episode with Scott and Tracy Morris I've been sitting on it waiting for the perfect opportunity to drop it into the mix here at monsterkidradio.net and I think you're going to like it I had a lot of fun chatting with Larry I always wait way too long between episodes with Larry on the show he's a great friend of mine he's a great friend of the show And I hope you guys and gals dig what he does. Maybe consider voting for him for that Horror Host Hall of Fame or at least checking out his YouTube channel. Just look up Dr. Gangreen on YouTube or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. From there, you'll find a link to his YouTube page, the Horror Host Hall of Fame ballot, and everything else that we've got going on here at Monster Kid Radio. We have our contact information there, our phone number. It's a voicemail line. It's 503-503. Four seven nine five six five seven. That's five zero three four seven nine five. M K R. You know, for Monster Kid Radio. Oh, and we also have an email address: Monster Radio at Gmail. I finally got this section of the website updated, our special thanks section for our Patreon patrons. If you are a patron of us through Patreon and help support the show at a particular level, your name gets thrown up on the website in this special thanks section. And depending on what level you support the show, you might even have a link to a website of your choice. Like Joseph Perry, he's one of our patrons and he's a writer. You can check out his writing at horrornews.net. Check that out until a monster kid radio sent you. If you want to be a supporter of Monster Kid Radio through Patreon, well, just look up patreon.com slash Radio, or follow the link in the show notes, again, back at monsterkidradio.net. You're also going to find links to our Live 365 internet radio station, which has some new music on it. I've been spending a little bit of time over the past week or so throwing up a new track here and there and really trying to make this worthwhile. I've gotten a lot of good feedback on it. If you are somebody who likes to listen to music while you're sitting at your computer, Check it out, or use your iPhone or your smartphone, download the Live 365 app, and check out Monster Kid Radio's presence on Live 365, where you're going to hear the best monster movie music from the 30s through the 60s with a few stragglers, like I just added a track from the Jack Palance Dracula film that Dan Curtis did for television. It's a 1970s production, but you know what? The music's just darn Cool. So I wanted to throw some of that in there. Also probably going to, within the next few days, add some music from the Young Frankenstein musical. Because, again, it's in the Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse. So check that out. You know, when you're not listening to Monster Kid Radio or hanging out at the Monster Kid Radio Facebook Group. We've got a group where people are having conversations between episodes, about episodes, about anything that we might want to talk about here on Monster Kid Radio. We also have a Facebook page. going to ask you to give us a like over there at the Facebook page. You know what? I'm rambling here. Somebody hit my jibber-jabber button. I'm going to turn it off and drop in the recording. Part one of our conversation with Larry Underwood, a.k.a. Dr. Gangrene, a.k.a. one of the biggest fans of Nosferatu that I know. His conversation with me about the 1922 silent film classic... Nosferatu.
1: Roll camera. Iris in. Begin. It's been a fitful night, but you wake refreshed. What is that beside you? It's a book about vampires. Nosferatu. Director F.W. Murnau had an obsession to create the world's most realistic vampire movie. Meet Count Orlok the overture to our symphony of horrors he dug up an actor i'd like some makeup well you don't get him who didn't just play the part but you're not feeding no you're not drinking her blood he lived it what is the matter with you where did you find him really from Lionsgate Films and producer Nicolas Cage comes the haunting tale of the uncompromising. You, you will have no close-ups scene. The unimaginable. Blood, blood. And the undead. Let us him. Academy Award nominees John Malkovich. I will finish my picture. And Willem Dafoe. This is hardly your picture any longer. Shadow of the vampire how dare you destroy my photographer why not the script girl i'll eat her later
0: i'd like to welcome back to monster kid radio dr Gangreen, my friend larry underwood who is on the ballot a nominee for new school ghoul The Horror Host Hall of Fame
2: 2015. Larry, welcome to the show, man. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me back. It's been a while, man. Well, it hasn't been that long because we just talked about Vincent Price recently.
0: We did talk about House of Wax. And by the way, I have a special message for you from Scott Morris, who's been on the show quite a bit. Yeah. He said because of you, he finally went out of his way to track down and
2: watch House of Wax, and he loved it. Awesome. So you're spreading the word. That's what this show is all about—keeping those movies alive. That's what your podcast, and that's great. I am glad to hear that. Awesome! Yeah, I talked to him last night. He said, "Tell Larry
0: that." I said, "Like, I will. I will. I got you." <laughs>
2: <laughs> Drug him into a horror movie—that's a good thing. Although Disney's got some dark stuff, but hey, uh, we're gonna do Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea with him soon. So I love that movie. I saw that as a kid in the theater, of one of the you know re-releases or whatever. That's one of my earliest. I thought my, one of the first not really a horror movie but first genre movies i remember seeing in a the theater oh it's gonna be Twenty Thousand f- leagues that's a good one
0: yeah i'm looking forward to recording about that one with him. so that's going to be a blast but this time around we're talking about something non-disney something that neither one of us got to see in the theater the first time around because we just weren't around we're talking about a film from 1922 the very first adaptation of dracula mm-hmm. nosferatu Yes, silent film, German film, a classic one of the if well, you know, this came up on Facebook, actually, because we talked about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari on the show a couple of weeks ago. And we talked about how that was the first horror film. But some other people on Facebook said, no, I think Nosferatu is the first horror film. So, well, I don't know. When
2: was Caligari made a couple of years before this one? Is this the first then? Right. Is the question. Do you consider Caligari horror? Is that the question? And I think that's the question. Yeah. No, I think it's a horror movie. Yeah, I would, I I would mean, give it horror. It's got plenty, enough elements there that, that I, I consider it a horror movie. But, oh, yeah, you're splitting hairs. They're both awesome movies. So. Well, this is
0: true. This is true. This is probably the – I would go and say maybe this is the first monster movie because it is a big vampire there thing. you go. You know? So I maybe there go there. Go. Although yeah. the director, Murnau, did quite a few spooky kind of movies before he got to this one. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that he was kind of playing in the dark stuff before he got around to doing this film. I mean, yeah. He did that version of Jekyll and Hyde, you know, the, the Janus head or, you, know, you want to hear me butcher some German? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think we're going to do a lot of that, just like yeah. last week with the Caligari thing. Yeah. Oh,
0: man. Yeah. During Janus Koff, yeah, <sighs> something like that. Anyway, but then it started Conrad Veidt, who had was the lead in, well, one of the leads in Caligari. So,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, when I was doing some research on the film, I was really surprised that this film and the director had all these other connections to these other German silent films that are also just as important, like Caligari or The Gollum. Yeah. You know, I, I had no idea about the connections here. I suppose it makes sense. Cinema was a small industry back in the 20s, and we're talking about German
2: cinema, so I'm sure they all knew each other. Well, there was this little group in Germany, I mean, that that were these these friends that were, you know, you had the two guys that, that were the producers of this film, and then you had the screenwriter, Enrique Galen. Uh, who they hired and brought him in, and then you had F.W. Murnau, but they were all associates, I think, through their common interests of supernatural or um, you know, mystic stuff or uh, occult influences, because this movie has a ton of occult influences. As we get into it, we'll talk more about that, but um, it's kind of interesting when you start looking at it from that perspective. It's like, wow, man, there's a lot of stuff going on kind of behind the scenes with this
0: film. There really is. Uh, you mentioned... They were a kind of a group of folks or friends who all kind of were really into this kind of thing. Before they got into the occult stuff, though, there was the stage. There was the films. Max Reinhardt kind of put this group of people together. And Max Reinhardt, you know, director, did a lot of work on stage and film, that sort of thing. He put these people together. And there was kind of like a movement of German cinema with this this very, for lack of a better term, German aesthetic that just really set these silent films apart from the silent films that were being made in America at the time.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I wrote an article in Scary Monsters magazine back, oh, I think it was 2012, maybe, about the roots of Nosferatu, where I kind of took a look at some of the occult influences to this film. And um, it is pretty interesting when you look back at it. It goes back to Alvin Grau, who was the producer, the costume designer, and head of the art department for this film was a soldier in World War I, and Germany was stationed, at the time they had occupied Transylvania, which is modern-day Romania, and while he was there, he was told a story, if you are to believe him, unless he was just spreading a bunch of total BS, but in a film magazine called Stage and Film, Bun und Film, issue number 21, he said that a Serbian farmer related a story that his father had died and was not given burial rites by a priest. And that shortly thereafter, he was seen around the the town. And that after that, there started becoming mysterious deaths. People were being killed mysteriously. And it got to the point where they finally had had enough. So they dug up the body and they drove a stake through its heart. And after that, the killing stopped. So that's pretty cool.
0: The story of the vampire is part of folklore especially for a time when people didn't really understand how things worked i mean the story that david callett relates in the audio commentary he's a film historian and he was involved in the nasa blu-ray that i have he tells that same story and he talks about how when they put the stake in the father's heart the body gasped which i mean we know now that of course it did because there were some gases building up inside the body and that's what happens when you puncture a a flesh balloon basically it's going to you know kind of release no well, it was a real vampire oh, i don't know what okay. you're talking about you're right okay <laughs> you're right of
2: course of course i forgot <laughs> <laughs> what it tells me is that at that time 1916 that people very if that story's true people definitely still believed in vampires or the supernatural i mean they even in in the film those for There's even a mention of a werewolf at one point. The werewolves are out there. So I mean, they had these beliefs still at at that time. So you got to think about, keep that in mind when you think about the impact of this film when it came out. It must scared the crap out of people because they still thought it it was real. That was 1916, and the, the film came out in 22. So you know, six years, that supernatural belief was still very much there. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Well, and whether it was there or not, it's still a hell of a good story. So. <laughs> Yeah. Even as yeah. just a story that's not reinforcing somebody else's personal beliefs, it's still a
2: great story just as a film. You're right. Maybe that's the other side of this. Maybe Growl was just a great promoter. Maybe he was going William Castle on this. Maybe this is the first <laughs> <laughs> the first earliest version of, of building up, yeah, man, I was told this story back in the war, you know, and, and just sort of fabricating this this entire thing to sell the film. Who knows? That's very possible, too. That's true. That's true. That was,
0: what, (laughs) 98 years ago that he
2: claimed to have been told that story? So who knows? When you look at the production design and the artwork for the film, uh, which Growl was responsible for, I mean, there are some beautiful – the man was definitely an amazing artist. They're The the very modern-looking works of art for the promotion for the posters for the film. Yeah, the artwork
0: is good and the art direction in the film itself, you can tell that a lot of the set design and the way the camera was placed, a lot of it was inspired by classical paintings and things like that. There's a real basis in art. There's a real effort to make this a piece of art, not just a throwaway piece of
2: entertainment. But there's some real art and work that went into this production. From start to finish. Interesting that there's that much artistic integrity in a piece of work that is a complete plagiarism. <laughs> you know? <laughs> on the one hand, it's like, oh, we're just going to steal these ideas or just take what we want. But on the other hand, we're really going to do a good version of it. Put all this time and effort into it to make the film as good as we possibly can. But. Yeah, they stole it. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, and and I think we're going to get to that. That's that's a lot of things that happened after the movie was released and the whole story of the Stoker widow and everything. I, I, I think there are some urban legends that have kind of crept out of that. Yeah. And, and we'll talk about that. I now. think so, too. Now, you had mentioned the – the occult background, and there's more than just vampires and the fleeting mention of werewolves in this movie. This movie's got a lot of supernatural elements just kind of in the background, just underneath the surface, things that I had forgotten about. I told you before we started recording for the show that I had seen this movie years ago, and I hadn't watched it since. So when I sat down to watch it again, I was quite struck by some of the imagery, some of the artwork you see on the wall, some of the things you see on the journal pages. mm mm-hmm. Yeah, it just went over my head before when I had watched it
2: here and
0: knowing all this now and, you know, listening to the commentary on the Blu-ray to see that all this was kind of packed in there and to learn about Grau's involvement with various occult organizations. Wow.
2: There's a lot going on here. I need to listen to that Blu-ray. That sounds that sounds great. The version I watched was the same version of the film, I think, that you have, but it's on Netflix. So for all you listeners out there that have Netflix there's a beautiful print on there right now that is restored from several you know, different versions, several different prints, which I was always under the impression that there was just one surviving print that another of these urban legends that survived after the court order of all of them being destroyed. But there had to have been multiple prints because I wrote down what this says: This version of Nosferatu was restored on behalf of um, – here's some more French name – Frédéric Murnau, Siftung-Westwaden in 2005-6, a tinted nitrate print with French intertitles from 1922 preserved at Cinématique Francois in Paris was used as the basis for this restoration. Missing shots were taken from a safety print from 1939 owned from a film archive in Berlin. Additional shots were from a nitrate print from the 1930s version, again at the Cinématique. François, Francois, François, François, whatever. Uh, original inner titles and <laughs> inserts were preserved from a safety print from another Berlin print derived from a 1922 film element newly restored in this print. Soundtrack is a reconstruction of the original 1921 score. So this reconstruction, which I think is the same one that you have on blue, is at, like the ultimate Nosferatu print to watch. I agree,
0: yeah. The copy that I have is also the Reconstruction, and and, I mean, we use the word Reconstruction, and I don't want people to think it's like that London After Midnight Reconstruction, TCM did a few years ago. No. Where they just took a bunch of stills and tried to recreate some things. This is a complete restoration, and probably as complete as you're ever going to get, barring somebody finding another copy of this film in a basement somewhere. Yeah. You so know they,
2: they just found this work print and this print here and this print here, and they just took the best elements or surviving elements of each and put it together to make the complete restored version.
0: There's a couple uh, title cards that had to be recreated because they were missing. But other than that,
2: this is as original as you're going to get. Yeah. And some of those title cards I've not read before. I mean, they were from the VHS Prints that I had in the past. It's a different, a little bit different version. It explains the story a little better, makes it a little clearer, makes more sense. It's a great version. Definitely watch that version.
0: Now, this movie is in the public domain because of its age. And its lineage, I mean, it's a German film. It's not like there was a a copyright holder here in the States fighting for it or whatever. It's a public domain film. So it's been released on VHS. It's on archive.org. It's on YouTube. It's everywhere. And I think the copy that I've seen before was a VHS copy as well. To see this Blu-ray, wow, I was blown away at how crisp some of these images were. Oh, yeah. It was gorgeous. Now, I actually own it on Blu-ray twice. (laughs) When I had ordered it on Blu-ray from the U.K., I had forgotten that I had already ordered it from uh. Uh, the uh, Amazon.com here in the States. So I have it on Blu-ray two ways. I have the Kino edition, which is really good, which is the same restoration. Uh, it is a two-disc set. It's got a one version with the German titles and one with the English titles and some things like that. And then the version that I really prefer was released by Eureka Entertainment over in the U.K., And it's part of their Masters of Cinema series, and it's got the two audio commentaries on it. There's also Mm -hmm. a documentary on both that I watched in preparation for this recording that talks about the history of Murnau and the film. The documentary is called The Language of Shadows. It's 53 minutes long. It's in German, (laughs) but there are subtitles. And I believe that documentary is also on YouTube somewhere. I would recommend that people check that out. It's got some really fascinating background information about Murnau and his growing up. His father was very strict and didn't want him getting into this art and that sort of thing. You know, he would bring books to the table to read at dinner time and his father would take the books away, you know, you know. You know, he was very strict. So when he started getting involved in theater, putting on puppet shows as a kid, that sort of thing, it wasn't exactly the direction his father wanted him to go in, but fortunately you know, as he grew, he connected with this, like I said, Max Reinhardt and a few other folks, and really got into doing theater and stage plays. And he wrote screenplays when he was in World War One. He was also a World War One uh, soldier or pilot, I believe, and he was writing screenplays and that sort of thing through the entire experience. So he really was into performing and performance arts. And thankfully, his father wasn't around to tell him no at that point, because we get movies like Nosferatu.
2: Which is an amazing film overall. I mean, it's, I have to say, it's my favorite vampire film, bar none. Even over Dracula. I mean, I like, I love Dracula, of course, and who doesn't like Lugosi? But to me, they're such different, and that's what's interesting, such different interpretations of the source material. Whereas the Lugosi version is so suave and sophisticated and romantic. This one is nothing more than a monster. He's terrifying. He's hideous. He looks and acts rat-like. He's disease-ridden and a pestilence and a plague on the city. And I think it is exactly what Del Toro is channeling with his new show, The Strain, which is out now, which is fantastic. But I think he is absolutely tapping into Nosferatu and the the whole disease-ridden undercurrents of that film.
0: You and I talk about The Strain by email, and I did not put this together. You're absolutely right. Yeah. The the vampires, the monsters, and The Strain feel much more Shrek than Lugosi. Now I want to go watch some more episodes of The Strain. I'm a few episodes behind. you I've to get caught up. I got to. My mother was here, and I wasn't going to make her watch it, but <laughs> I need to watch it. You mentioned Lugosi real quick. I want to throw out a bit of trivia. The director, Murnau, actually worked with Lugosi. Wow. In the Der Jonas Koff, the face of Janice, the Jekyll and Hyde film that he had done starring Conrad Veidt, Lugosi's in that film. How about that? Now, the documentary that I watched said this was Lugosi's first film. I don't think that's really true, but I still think that's pretty neat. that <laughs> Murnau actually worked with Lugosi two years before making the first Dracula film. Mm-hmm. So, a little bit of trivia.
2: That's pretty neat.
0: But yeah, the vampire Nosferatu, wow. It is striking, the design. I mean, he doesn't have, like, the big bushy mustache like Dracula has in the novel, but he does have the wiry eyebrows and the – oh, just so good.
2: Mm -hmm. The rat-like fangs and the big long long claws and the coffins full of rats that are traveling with him. Very rat-like. Oh, very – and very just – Chilling, just
0: seeing him standing there. There's a reason why that image gets used and referenced over and over and over again by monster magazines and websites and introductions to horror host shows and all of this. I mean the image of Shrek as Count Orlock is just an iconic, striking, terrifying figure. And oh, the yeah. things that they have him doing, the rising out of the coffin, I mean that's also become almost kind of a cliche moment in a lot of vampire movies now when he just rises, pivoting on his feet. Mm-hmm. Coming out of the coffin like that. that stuff, we yep. saw that in 1922 for crying out loud. You see yeah. that in a movie like, do they do that in the Lost Boys or you know other vampire films? Where the, the way they rise up, the
2: Germans did it in 22. Yeah, it's amazing, and that has stuck with us this entire time. This being the first adaptation of Dracula, they definitely were trying to skirt the law and do their own thing, their own version of it. They changed some things up. Where well, I guess they thought they changed it enough, obviously they didn't. But it's kind of a loose, half-assed attempt at uh, changing it up. You got um, in the, the Jonathan Harker role is a guy named Hutter, <laughs> like they didn't try oh, there's a stretch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, they didn't even try. But um, but it does follow the book as far as um him being sent over to try to um, sell some real estate to Count Dracula. I like that, well, a little bit of a change here, but but the Renfield character is just called Nock in this. Nock. But he is Harker's, Hutter's boss in this film. And uh, I like how he's already been contacted by uh, Nosferatu, to Count Orlock. So you, you get right off the bat the fact that he's sort of under Orlock's. Um, no pun intended, huh? Huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> he's under his sway. You know what I mean? I mean, he's yeah. under the influence of Orlock he's got that paper that he's reading that's got all the little mystical runes and symbols and things written all over it, which is another of those things that's so pristinely reproduced in the Blu-ray copy. Uh, You really get to look at that paper and all the little scribblings and things that are on it.
0: The character of Nock being Hutter's supervisor, I guess, manager, boss, is a slight change for me. I never really got the impression that Renfield and Harker had that kind of relationship in Dracula, but to see that in this film, I thought it was an interesting reversal or, or presentation of the relationship. And you're right, from the very beginning, Nock is under his influence. Now later, as the film progresses, Nock kind of descends into Renfield's <laughs> um, yeah. you know, mania, I suppose. Granted, he doesn't do the laugh that Dwight Fry does because it's a silent film, but still, I mean, he's he really does kind of progress and go on this horrible journey from – a slight influence to complete domination by Orlock.
2: Yeah. And they talk about how he was he was not really he was kind of a strange character right from the beginning. So I think he was a little you know a little off anyway, but then Orlock was able to take advantage of that. And so it's Nock who suggests that Hutter sell him the house across the street from his own. It's like, oh, he wants a house, so why don't you sell him the one right across from you? <laughs> and Orlock seems to already know about hutter's beautiful wife i think that's something that knock had already told him hey man i got this employee he's got this hot wife here and he's gotta come on over (laughs) (laughs) i think i'm I'm gonna
0: have to go back and watch it again darn but i wonder if you can really start to see that from the very beginning because the acting in this movie is really good so i Mm -hmm. wonder watching it a second time so soon after watching the first time i wonder if i'll be able to pick up on some of this because there is this manipulation we talked earlier about the vampire being this monster rat like that sort of thing but there also seems to be some manipulation happening here that you would maybe attribute to a more suave sophisticated vampire dracula type
2: yeah he's not he's not stupid no he's a evil mastermind is what he is and he there you wants go to bring his plague to the across the ocean to wherever they're at I don't know I don't know where, where is where is uh, Orlock supposed to be is he in Transylvania I guess he is Do they even say I don't know I guess so Yeah Oh yes they do Count Orlock his grace from Transylvania wishes to go. purchase a house in our town mm-hmm. You might have to go to a little trouble a little sweat and maybe a little blood <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's not foreboding at all No, no not at all Knock was played by Alexander Gronick. I don't know anything about him. I don't know much about the cast at all, other than I know Max Shrek is amazing as the villain mm-hmm. and was the inspiration for the name of Christopher Walken's character in Batman Returns. But beyond that, I don't know much about him.
2: And, of course, this movie was remade again later, years later. Uh, 1979? Yeah, I'm never, not a big fan of the remake. Never I don't think I've it. ever seen it. I th- Yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen it. All the way through. And of course, there's that um, more recent film, Shadow of the Vampire, which is pretty fantastic. You've, so you do like that one? You've seen that I one. do. I really do. Very creative, too. And the whole take of, hey, this was them shooting the film about the filming of Nosferatu and having the vampire Shrek Shrek be a real vampire. What a great idea. Part of that seemed to
0: have come out of some of the urban legends about shrek himself because there were some rumors and some stories that shrek was maybe somebody who was on the run maybe he was a uh, an escaped convict from something that's why he wore so much makeup he was unidentifiable that sort of thing now later that was all debunked and that's just garbage he was just an actor but you know, there was a little bit of mystery behind who Max Shrek really was. And I could see maybe somebody saying, well, let's make the story. Let's make him a vampire. And, sure.
2: You extrapolate you know.
0: from there, and there
2: you go. There so, you go. That's how stories are written. Yep. I love it, though. So it's, it's interesting. But getting back to, to this film, I guess we should go through the quick plot real quickly. I'm, I think it's, the, I think we're bit, <laughs> it's Dracula. <laughs> I mean, it's Dracula. It's Dracula, you know? I mean, he yeah. goes over to sell him the land and, and immediately um, falls under the... I, I like that he gets there and you, you get your whole classic setup of the the villagers who fear the name of kind of Orlock and they're like oh you can't go there you know the whole thing that you see again in in Dracula and in, in every version from there on you know it's mm-hmm. just that's archetype that's starts here I mean this this is the first time you see it it really does this movie births so much it really did so. The next thing that you see reproduced over and over is the journey there. And the stagecoach driver takes him part of the way and says, hey, this is it. I'm not going any further. You can pay me whatever you want. Nothing is enough money. This is it. I'm not going any closer to the castle. You're on your own. He leaves him. And uh, shortly thereafter, the coach comes up, driven by Nosferatu himself, which, again, you see reproduced in other movies. But um, his face is hidden, sort of. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, (laughs) he doesn't blend in <laughs> it's not very
0: inconspicuous but no not at all and the stagecoach or this the yeah the stage is draped in black and i don't know if i could... <laughs> granted he was stranded out in the middle of nowhere
2: but i mean really <laughs> yeah well i mean he already has a clue that he's in he's in over his head because yeah. he found a little book about werewolves and vampires and children of the night at the place he was staying, the tavern where he was staying, he finds this book and he's reading through it and he's reading all these legends about werewolves and, I mean, about vampires and the lady tells him, says the, the werewolves are loose out there tonight. Don't go outside, you know, which so, I had yeah.
0: forgotten about the werewolf. I'd forgotten about the werewolf mentioned, which, you know, we're linking werewolves and vampires
2: in 1922. This is so cool. Yeah. I mean, Transylvania, man, it got everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. They're all out there, man. Don't go out that don't go outside in Transylvania now. <laughs> <laughs> werewolves vampires, Frankenstein's out there somewhere too i'm sure he is <laughs> yeah he's stomping around don't go out there but he gets uh he gets the orlocks gets inside meets the count counts kind of pissed that you've kept me waiting it's almost midnight come on let's, let's get to business but they sit down to eat he's like you know you're hungry you might be hungry sit down to eat and and to get the, the classic scene where he cuts his finger and uh Orlock immediately jumps up and runs over and start, grabs the guy's hand and starts sucking on his finger. Your blood, your precious blood. It's pretty creepy. Yeah, just a little. Hutter, Harker, our Harker character, Hutter, um, kind of backs away from the Count and and, um, and gets him back to a corner, and, and he collapses in a chair, and, and the Count's like, no, 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 stay up with me. I'm, I have to sleep during the daytime, but let's stay up overnight with me. It, it kind of fades to black and wakes up the next morning and, Hutter's got these strange marks on his neck, so yeah. know he's been fed on. So the Count couldn't even make it a night without, you know, he's just there's there's, you know, no redeeming qualities about this this guy. He's, mm-hmm. he's a monster. Flat
0: out, no doubt. And I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of somebody seeing this movie for the first time back then. Because I mean, we come to this movie now and we're like, well, we've seen vampire movies, we've seen how many versions of Dracula, you know. But, man, this is just mind-blowing to me, trying to imagine what it would be like to see this movie for the first time and not have all of this already kind of
2: in my head, you know? Yeah. And for the most part, you don't get to see him feeding until the end of the movie. But you just see the corpses of everything. And that's what I like about this rendition of Dracula, of the monster, is that he doesn't – Turn other people into the living dead, or anything. And he just kills them. I mean, he just—he's a monster. He he drinks your blood and kills you and leaves you for dead. Done. Yeah. I mean, he's you a predator. Know? I mean, that,
0: that's yeah. what he is. He's a killer. He's a predator. He's doing what he needs to do to survive. None of this. I've crossed oceans of time to be with you, garbage. It's just flat out. He's a monster.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. He does go ahead the next the next evening. He he they sign the paperwork. The house is you know is sold hutter winds up he does some investigation the neck during the next day and find after that and finds um finds the coffin with counterlock sleeping in it and so he he realizes oh shit this is real you know these the legends are true <laughs> what the hell you know yeah. and at this point he's completely freaked out but he's trapped he can't get out right the following evening he he looks out and he sees in the courtyard or out there carrying coffins and and he's piling up coffins on back of a flatbed because he's getting out of out of town you know he's like i'm done he just leaves hutter leaves him trapped in the castle Mm -hmm. takes his boxes of earth and leaves so i guess what he was going to do is he was going to scatter these coffins all through the city so he has places to sleep so he can go out and he can feed and he can have coffins everywhere that's what i assume he's doing
0: that's the impression that I got as well. I mean, part of the mythology of the vampires is that they've got to sleep in their native soil, that sort of thing. So he's bringing lots of his native soil around. I, I don't know if I immediately thought he's going to set up different safe houses around the
2: city, but I mean, he needs his dirt, so. Yeah, and <laughs> you he, know? he's bringing a, a party of friends back with him, too, because once they get on the mm-hmm. ship, one of the members, the crew members goes down and cuts open one of the boxes with an axe and just a flood of rats come out of the. Coffin, which is a great image. So, oh, yeah. you know, obviously, counterlock wanted to bring his friends with him. It's like, hey, uh, you know, we're going on, <laughs> I'm going on his voyage man. I'm not going alone. <laughs> i am bring my of
0: the night. That's right. That's right. It, was, it is a great image. I think everything on the ship is amazing. This is my favorite part of the film because you've got the rats and you've got with him just stalking around the boat. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason why they used an image from this scene on the Kino. DVD cover, Blu-ray cover, just him on that boat is just creepy.
2: Yeah, it is. And you're
0: trapped. You can't go anywhere. I mean, you're out in the middle of the ocean. Where are you going to go to run away from the vampire?
2: Mm -hmm. And again, he needs the crew members to get him from point A to point B. He needs them to get him to the city where he's going to go live. But at the same time, he just can't help himself. He's, He's feeding on them. He's killing them off one by one until eventually it's just a deserted ship that floats into the into the city again. Another image that's brought into the strain with the airplane that lands and it's
0: ah, good point.
2: Every, everybody's dead. The beginning of the strain starts with an airplane that lands on a runway. There's not a living soul on it, but that's a there's really a monster hidden yep. underneath in a coffin, just like Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. Which Del Toro is is by far my favorite working director today, and he's such a clever guy and such a monster kid. He gets it, man. He truly gets it. We ought
0: to get him on the show. I'm just Oh him yeah, call. there you go. I want yeah. to see him a call. If tell you what. If anybody out there knows how to get a hold of Del Toro, tell him there's an open invitation. <laughs> <laughs> Come back here in a couple of days for episode 142 for the conclusion of that conversation. Larry, thank you for spending the time with us here on Monster Kid Radio to talk about this iconic vampire monster German silent horror film it's one of the good ones man and so are you sir and so is Bela Lugosi so why don't we go ahead and roll into our countdown to Ween? this is part four I feel like 1932's Murders in the Rue Morgue doesn't get enough attention or appreciation. I know the film has a few problems, but compared to what I consider to be the film's strengths the movie really does need a rewatch or two. It serves as a great what if piece and it's got some great man in gorilla suit action courtesy of Charles Gamora. I don't want to spend too much time sidelining here about Gamora, but there's a long and magnificent history of eight men in early cinema. And Charles Gamora was one of the best. He was also a makeup man. He even did some work on Island of lost souls. Although I don't know if he had a hand in Legosi's makeup in that film. That said, He's most known for his roles in The Ape Suit, and in Murders in the Room Morgue, he plays Eric, the ape owned by Bela Lugosi's character, Dr. Miracle. Murders in the Room Morgue takes its name from an Edgar Allan Poe story. In fact, that story is credited as being the first modern detective tale. However, as would also happen with The Raven, this Bela Lugosi film wasn't exactly the best and most direct adaptation of the original Poe story. However... Murders is a little closer to the source material than, say, 1935's The Raven. I mentioned that I thought Murders in the Rue Morgue is a nice, what-if fantasy, and here's what I mean by that. The director, Robert Florey, was originally attached to direct the first Frankenstein film, and, as we know, Lugosi was considered for the monster in that movie at one point. However, Lugosi was also considered for the role of Dr. Frankenstein. Now, obviously, history tells us this didn't happen, and meaning no disrespect to Colin Clive, who I like a lot in Frankenstein, I can't help but wonder how Lugosi's career would have gone if he did take the Dr. Frankenstein role and make it his own. Now, we'll never know what that would have done for his career, but we can get an idea as to what the movie might have been like, or at least how he would have been in the movie by watching Murders in the Rue Org. As Dr. Miracle, he's a scientist who takes blood from Eric and injects it into women. It's creepy. He's creepy. He talks about his experiments, and when they fail, man, he's disappointed and disposes of the body. Murders in the Rue Morgue is a dark film. People die. It's pretty gruesome for a 1932 movie. The word is that the movie ran close to an hour and a half before having to be cut down to 61 minutes before Universal agreed to release it. And this is before code. Now, the movie feels like it's been cut in a few places, but, really, to good effect. For example, a woman dies after Miracle's experiment, but she doesn't die until after he criticizes her for having sour blood. Read into that what you want. The camera tries to linger on the dead woman's face but I'm guessing Universal stepped in and cut that shot short. Because as it is now, her dead face just flashes on the screen for a moment. And it's unsettling. I don't know for sure if this scene was really edited by the studio, but however it got to its current final state, it works. The entire scene is creepy. The woman is strapped to a cross in a somewhat similar fashion to Karloff being strapped to a cross in 1934's The Black Cat. Another Poe quote-unquote adaptation that appropriated a story's name and little else. But unlike Lugosi in The Black Cat, where he's somewhat heroic for most of the movie, his Doctor Miracle is bad through and through. If Lugosi and Flory would have been given free reign on Frankenstein, I suspect we would have had a much, much darker film, and there'd be little question as to who the true monster in a Frankenstein film was if Lugosi had played the Doctor. I wish Murders in the Rue Morgue had a standalone DVD release. I have the Bela Lugosi collection Universal put out in 2005, and that set comes with The Black Cat, The Raven, The Invisible Ray, and Black Friday. All decent movies. Even though it can be argued that the studio didn't really treat him right, some of Lugosi's best work was with Universal, and sometimes even alongside Karloff. Even though this is a countdown to Lugosi-ween, I want to go back to Charlie Gamora again real quick. One of the issues this movie has is related to Eric the Ape, For some reason, and I don't know if it was director Flory's decision, or if it's the studio's fault, but whenever we get a close-up of Eric's face, we see a real animal. That's a real shame. Sure, a man in a gorilla suit isn't 100% realistic. Modern audiences now would know that there's a man in the suit. But in 1932, how many people would have really known exactly what an ape looked like close up? How many had even seen an ape? Murders in the Room Morgue suffers because we go back and forth between real animal and ape suit a few too many times. While using the real animal may have been more realistic, not sticking to Gamora in the suit for the close-ups broke the reality of the movie a little bit. But this is a minor quibble, and let's be honest, as much as we might enjoy a good man in a gorilla suit scare here at MKR, we're not watching Murders in the Room Org for the Monkey. It's a definite Bela Lugosi vehicle, and while he would go on to play other mad scientists in the future, I'd go as far as saying that his role as Dr. Miracle is one, or at least should be considered one, of his definitive roles underrated and underappreciated we get a glimpse of the dark madness he would have brought to Frankenstein I mean I'm grinning just imagining what he would have done beating the Frankenstein creature back as it misbehaved the lengths that he would have gone to to keep his secret experiments away from his friends and family and the glee with which he could have exclaimed it's alive it's alive oh what could have been the music accompanying the Countdown to Logosi Ween is Dance Macabre, Sad Part, No Violin by Kevin McLeod over at incompetec.com It's licensed under a Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. This is also noted on our website at MonsterKidRadio.net. Now this brings us to the end of this episode of monster kid radio. Hope you've enjoyed listening. And I hope you come back here in a couple of days for some more conversation with Larry about Nosferatu, another installment of Legosi Ween, and to hear about how the crash went. Well, sort of here's the thing. I was invited to go to the joy cinema Wednesday night, the 15th, because they are showing Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. That's cool. I've never seen the film in its entirety, I'm really excited about it. I know at least one listener of Monster Kid Radio has reached out to me asking if I was going to be there, and I had to turn him down because I had some of the things happening that night. Well, my schedule changed again. So I will be at the Joyce Cinema Wednesday night to check out Jesse James Meets Frankenstein's Daughter. If you're in the Portland, Oregon area and you're 21 and older, I'd love to see you. Check them out over at thejoycinema.com. They are in Tigard, Oregon. And Weird Wednesday, 9 p.m., It's free, so you have no excuse if you've got nothing to do, or even if you did, and you're in the area, I'd love to meet you. I will be introducing the film as well. This is going to be a real treat for me. I hope you guys and gals dig it too, but I'm excited to get out to the joy and introduce the movie. I've done it once before for Creature from a Black Lagoon, and I recorded that, and that will be coming out on a future episode of Creature Cast Among Us, the Creature spinoff that will be launching next month monster kid radio is a registered service mark of monster kid radio LLC all original content of monster kid radio by monster kid radio LLC is licensed under a creative commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives 3.0 unported license of course that doesn't apply to the song black crescent that belongs to the band beware the dangers of a ghost scorpion it's on their album blood drinkers only you can check them out over at GhostScorpion.bandcamp.com. let them know that monster kid radio sent you And I'll talk to everybody here in a couple of days.